This is part two of the interview with Sarah Parrish, one of the founders of Torch Coffee in Sevilla, Spain. Sarah expands on her background growing up in Guatemala and how this affected the why behind her opening up a coffee shop. She also expands on how a trip from Torch's founder helped her and her sister to press on and what it looks like to be clear about your business's culture and the systems within your business. Sarah shares her story here with SCI's Alexandra Mosier. How has it been like knowing that it's your last, your last month there? Cause what you've been there for five years, no, four years, almost nine, eight, eight and a half years, almost eight and a half. Yes. No yeah. way. Yeah. By the time we got a uh, residency, we got all the paperwork done. We looked for a locale, remodeled everything else. So the business has been open five years, but it took us about six months before. So it's just by one thing after another. It's we've been here a little over eight years now. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's what I was kind of wondering because I know you guys have had this shop for what, like four years now, right? September 15th would have been five years. Oh, okay. So two weeks till five years. So, yeah, I was trying to figure out, like, the timeline for, like, how everything started. So can you walk me through, like, the timeline of, like, what happened for those eight years? Well, we first got here, we moved to Spain with just a regular tourist visa just to try to get information. Spain is, like, really well known for horrible bureaucracy and nothing is clear and the immigration system is just like a mess. Like there's tons of blogs and jokes and memes about it, but like we could not find any information whatsoever online about what type of visa or residency we needed to apply for. So we're like, well, we have a 90 day tourist visa. Let's just go to the offices, try to get some information, hire a lawyer, whatever we need to do. We were here on six months and then we were able to extend it several times so we could stay here while we applied for the residency but it took us almost a year and a half just to get the residency paperwork done. Wow. It was, a, it was a, just a huge mess. Like we would go to one office, no one could give us information or they say, you need this document from this place. So we'd have to make like an appointment. The appointment was a month away. So we had to waste a whole month. Finally get to our appointment and we show up to that office. We're like, no, this isn't the right office. You have to make an appointment somewhere else. And, Wait another month. It was just a year and a half of basically being sent from one place to another, trying to figure out what paperwork we need to send in. So after a year and a half, we're finally able to figure out what it was that we needed to do, what paperwork was required. We were able to get everything together, submit the paperwork. So it took us about a year and a half. And then once we finally got our legal residency, then we started trying to look for for locales, which was also very uh, wasn't easy. When we first got to Spain, I was 25, 26. My sister was 23, 24. And that age in Spain is like really, really young. In the States, I think that they have this like, once you're 18, you're an adult, you move out, you move, you live on your own, you're self-supporting, you pay for your own things. But the culture in Spain is like, you can be 35. I have friends, guy friends that are lawyers and engineers, and they're like 35, 40, and they still live at home. And so 25, two single women in their 20s was like, what you guys have no idea what you're doing. Like no one wanted to rent us a, a place. They thought that we didn't know what we were doing. 
which is partially true, but (laughs) (laughs) so it took us another eight months or so, I think, to finally find a locale that we liked that was reasonable price and that was willing to rent to us. And then once we got that worked out, then it took us, I think, four or five months for the remodel and getting it all ready for opening. And when was the time when you went to, was it Thailand where you met Samuel and did the social entrepreneurship course? Yes. I can't remember the year, <laughs> but that was, right, okay. that was right before coming, coming to Spain. So it was, no, it was, I think, a year and a half before because I went to Thailand. That's where I met Samuel. We went back to States for a little while to try to find some investment. Then we, a couple months later, we went to China and spent three months, I think, in China with him and Chandra and Greenhouse. And, and then we went back to States, continued looking for investment and then moved to Spain. That's a wild process. <laughs> when you first were, were going into it, did you kind of expect that it was going to take that long or did no. you have like a different idea? I didn't think it was going to take that long at all. I think the most frustrating part It took us a while to find investment, but that was kind of, we kind of knew that was going to happen. Just trying to find investors for a different country. We knew it wasn't going to be easy. But I think the part, the most frustrating part was trying to get residency. Just because we were were opening business. So we have an entrepreneurship visa or residency or had. You would think a country that was in crisis would be more willing or little more motivated to try to get entrepreneurs to open businesses here but it was a drawn out absolutely stressful confusing process of like the whole time we were here we weren't working we were still having to like pay rent and and all that kind of stuff so I think that was the most frustrating part of the process it's interesting because I feel like especially in the United States we have this idea of Spain like I'm going to move to Spain and I'm going to start business. And it's like, woohoo, like party all the time. (laughs) No, it's, it's not like that at all. It's, it's actually pretty sad in my opinion. It's really, really sad to see because like you talk to young people here and I don't know anybody, anybody that's my age or younger. I'm 34. My age or younger that actually wants to open a business because everyone knows how, how difficult it is and how high taxes are and how many regulations and paperwork and bureaucracy and roadblocks and everything that they put towards for you that it's, it completely kills anybody that has any desire to do so. And that was even before like this whole situation and everyone here wants to work for the government. And so I think in the States, they almost like they have this idea, anyone that works for the government is kind of like, like even like you think about like post office, like who wants to work in a post office, but here that's like actually people that's, for them, that's a great career choice because they know no matter what, you'll be working for the government. You'll have a steady paycheck. They can't fire you because it's impossible to get fired here. Any kind of crisis, like right now, COVID, everybody that works in the government has a stable paycheck. So it's kind of sad that like they don't incentivize entrepreneurship at all here. And I didn't see that until moving here and being here for nine years that I I don't know very many people actually have the desire to open businesses here. That's wild. But you like have more faith in Guatemala's kind of situation as far as like opening up a business or you guys want to do like a, you said you wanted to do like maybe like a smaller cafe, but you wanted to also maybe focus on roasting, right? Yeah, we're probably, we're looking at doing more roasting, like wholesale roasting, um, education, and maybe just a small coffee shop. 
But I, just, I feel like it would be a lot easier. Um, I think both the United States and Guatemala are countries that incentivize entrepreneurship a little bit more. They already understand the difficulties of being an entrepreneur just by itself and aren't going to put 20 million roadblocks for you. Just to give you an example here, I, since um, this is just one out of like dozens of paperwork I have to fill out every day. But everything, any machinery or anything maintenance-wise that I'd have to do at the coffee shop, I have to fill out paperwork for. Down to if a light bulb goes off during the day, I have to fill out paperwork stating that the light bulb went out, what date and time, and what actions I did in order to fix it. If the, the refrigerator breaks, I have to call a technician. If the grinder needs repairing, I have to call a technician for every little repair I do during the day. I have to fill out paperwork for. And that's just one out of dozens and dozens of things I'd have to do every day. And so just putting so many requirements like that, it's just like then your whole day is, is filled up with just trying to be legal every day and have all your paperwork done just in case you have an inspection that it doesn't leave any time for creativity or growth or for anything else. So I think in the United States and Guatemala, they kind of facilitate businesses a lot more. Okay, that's good news. I'm like excited for you guys to go back to Guatemala and see what that's like to yeah. do something similar. Like, well, would you say it's something similar? Are you still going to be under like the torch brand? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, okay. I, that was one thing that I knew for sure. I love working in coffee. I, I absolutely love the coffee community and I love working with torch. And oh, so nice. um, the thing that wasn't the easiest was trying to do business in Spain. <laughs> But right. I knew I knew right off the bat. I, I didn't know where I wanted to be in the world for a while. I didn't know leaving Spain if I would want to go to another European country or go back to the States. Or we were kind of playing with uh, where for a while. But what we knew for sure is that we want to continue working on coffee and we want to continue working with Torch. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so right now the vision, when you say education, what do you mean? Uh, courses, coffee courses. Everything from sensory, roasting, brewing, barista. What is kind of like the, the purpose behind that? Is there a certain demographic that you're going for? Or like, what are your hopes with education? In Guatemala, from last time I looked, I haven't looked in the last couple months. I've been kind of trying to get this closed out. But last time I checked, there isn't a um, certified, SCA certified coffee school in Guatemala. There's some smaller coffee schools. Um, but I think we have the huge advantage of it's we're wanting to do Sustainable Coffee Institute, but also SCA. But we have the advantage of the, both languages. So we're looking at running courses for people in Guatemala that are wanting to work in coffee, but also opening it up to outside of Guatemala. So people from the States, they can do we can do coffee tours or processing camps or anyone that wants to go to Guatemala, learn coffee in a country of origin. We can run classes in English as well. So we're Whoa, looking at doing awesome. running classes in both languages. You probably have to be like SCA certified, right? Uh, my sister is. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Vicky's good. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I wanted to ask you some questions kind of about like, I realized that I didn't really understand your background a whole lot. So I know that you grew up mostly in Guatemala, right? Can you tell me kind of like your background? I'm a huge mix. So I, I get that question a lot. And sometimes like, I don't know how to answer it. I come from a very multicultural family. My dad has three passports, Canadian, American, and Guatemalan. But my grandfather, his dad was raised in Colombia. 
And so my dad is American Canadian Guatemalan, but was born and raised in Guatemala. But my mother is from Georgia. The state or the country? The state, the United States. Yeah, (laughs) Georgia. Okay. They met in the United States. They were both studying there. They got married, um, went to Guatemala, and we were all born and raised in Guatemala. So when the short story, what I give people just to simplify my story, I just say I'm half, half. I'm half American, half Guatemalan. I was in Guatemala till I was 19 or 20, spent my whole life in Guatemala. And then I went to Texas for a few years to study. I think I was in Texas for four years and then I moved to Spain. Okay. What did you study in uh, Texas? Business. Okay. Yeah. And so if I'm correct, isn't like your family, aren't they missionaries or no? I personally don't consider them missionaries because like when I see other missionaries in Guatemala, my family is not like that at all. Like really my family are locals. Like they're, they're like, my dad is, he's tall and white, but culturally speaking, language, uh, the way he views things, he's 100% Guatemalan. And like he's been speaking, he learned English when he met my mom. So he's half American, but he didn't even speak English until he was 20, like 20, 19, 20. And so our way of interacting and stuff, like, I don't know, maybe I just have a picture of what missionaries were like in Guatemala and they all like did social work or feeding children or like in my family, my parents were church planners. And so I I don't consider missionaries because for them, that's home. And for us, that's home. My mom, my mom is the foreigner, but actually she's super Guatemalan now, like. I think she feels more at home in Guatemala than she does in the United States now. So I would say I we, were, we were in ministry, but I wouldn't consider us ourselves or like my parents missionaries. Right. It would be like saying, like, I'm a missionary in Portland. But that's yeah. home for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So what like town or what area in Guatemala did you grow up in? I grew up in a town called San Cristobal which is right outside of Guatemala City. It's actually close or it's on the way to Antigua. So coffee people, they know every like Antigua, Guatemala. Um, it was a town right outside of the city, like kind of going towards Antigua. Okay, so did you experience a lot of like coffee culture growing up? I think in a sense I did. I don't think growing up I really paid attention to it, but I think just being from a producing country, I remember my whole life just driving th- by coffee farms and it was just like normal it wasn't I'd never even stopped to think about it and even in Guatemala City there's certain areas of the city that you drive by and it's like a house and then there's a farm and it's just very much part of the views around Guatemala City so you see a volcano and then you see farms around it and so I think in certain sense you kind of grow up with coffee culture you start drinking coffee very young there I remember drinking coffee when I was a baby and it's very typical to have coffee after dinner around like the table. You have dinner, you clear off the table, and then people bring out coffee. So you sit around the table after dinner still drinking coffee. So it's very much like a, a cultural thing. But I think it's just you don't really realize it. It's, it's the same as Spain. Like people have cultural understanding of wine, but because they're around it. But I wouldn't say I, I knew coffee. Like it was just we were around coffee farms and kind of knew what they looked like and you had a sense or I have a sense or understanding of what the weather needs to be like for for coffee to grow because that's just like where I grew up okay so I'm trying to understand where this like coffee dream was born from was it just like well yeah that sounds like it could be fun or like was there something else behind it 
I think it was, I think a lot of people get into coffee because they first love coffee. I think for me, it was, I got into coffee because I love my love for business. And I think business came before coffee for me. And so I always knew I wanted to run a business. And so I think being my first business, I always had the idea or I was in love with the idea of a coffee shop. Because like, I think when you're a customer at a coffee shop, you have this like romantic idea of what it's like. And it's not like that at all. But of just like sitting down and enjoying a cup of coffee with your friends and like the community around it and like the pastries and just how, how enjoyable it is. So I think I was in love with that idea. And I, so I got into coffee or started learning coffee because of I wanted to open a business. Yeah, especially if you have this um, tradition in Guatemala where, like, after dinner, you and your family even get around, like, Mm -hmm. coffee. You know, like, in the United States, it's like, oh, you meet up with a friend or a colleague and you go out to coffee. But if, like, every night after you have this, like, this moment with your family of dinner and how, like, familial that is, and then you have, like, Mm -hmm. coffee, like, it just sounds like it's so much more it's, it's very, built very into part. how you social. Yeah, no, even on the weekends. So during the week, it's you drink it a lot in family or at home. But on the weekends, you go out with friends and you get together for coffee. But I, I even remember um, we would have family dinners once a week where my aunts and uncles, everyone came to the house. And after dinner, we would sit there for hours drinking coffee and just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. It's very much part of the family life, but also friends and family and socializing and, and everything like that as well. Well, wow, that's interesting, too, because it to me, I feel like in the United States, I could replace that with like drinking alcohol almost, you know, like after dinner, it's pretty normal to have like some kind of like alcoholic drink afterwards. But personally, I, I like the idea of coffee like better. I don't know. I think it's more. Like there's more energy behind it or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think maybe like drinks and like alcohol or beers and stuff would be more like on the weekend type thing. But then like during the family, during the week, it would be more, it would be more coffee. Mm, okay. So you were talking about before, like Vicky wanted to just like really do a business with you, even though she wasn't super business orientated. Mm-hmm. Did she also have uh, this romantic view of coffee shops and coffee? I think so. I think Vicky and I, uh, we both have very different motivations for wanting to do this. And we both have different strengths and different roles within the business. So she's never been the type of like wanting to open a business or that's more my side. But I think she really enjoys like, I, I wouldn't use this word, but I can't think of another, another word for it. Maybe the more artistic or the creative side of coffee. And so she's the one that focuses on like the education or the brewing methods or extractions like she's more into the coffee side and I'm more into the the business side so it works out great because we both have our own focus and we're able to get a lot more done that way yeah that's amazing Mm -hmm. and Samuel was also he mentioned something like how coffee is this interesting business because there is so many people who do go into coffee with this romantic idea of it because of coffee shops Mm -hmm. but you don't see that in a lot of other businesses for instance like if I was opening up like uh, a paper company or I was opening up like, you know, he used the example of like a porta potty company like, <laughs> You go into it with the business mindset. Like there's yeah. not like romance behind it. You're like going into it about like, okay, how are we going to be profitable? What is the business model? Yeah. And like, you're very focused on that. What would you say about the beginning like if someone was opening up a coffee shop right now, like how they could be more prepared when they go into it, if they are the kind of person who is like very 
I'm going to do this for the social aspect or something like that? I think it's not necessarily a bad thing, depending on how you go into it. I think having that, like that illusion or that romantic idea of coffee shops kind of is what helps you create that environment. And so if you're able to recreate that environment where people also fall in love with that idea, then you're doing your job pretty well. If someone comes into a coffee shop and all they sense is like chaos, disorder, too much commotion, disorganization, like if they don't come in with that same sense, then you're, then in a sense, you're not doing your job right. And so I think that having that romantic idea helps you also to kind of focus and like recreate that same atmosphere for somebody else. But the negative aspect is you don't realize how much work behind the scenes. Mm. So when, when someone has the only experience they have at a coffee shop is just being a customer and they've never worked behind the bar, they have no idea how much work goes into it. And it's just, it could kill the romance really quickly if you don't have a good idea of what all goes into it. And so uh, we always joke around saying we spend more time cleaning bathrooms and washing dishes than we do sitting down and having coffee. And that's the truth. There'd be days I don't even get a chance to sit down and have a cup of coffee. Like you can get a shot real quick behind the bar because you're you're trying out the shots all day and like that kind of stuff. But really sitting down and enjoying it, there's days that you don't even have a chance to do that. You're washing dishes, cleaning floors, cleaning bathrooms, uh, picking up napkins off the floor. Just the million and one things that go behind uh, running a coffee shop. And I think going in with an understanding that it's not as romantic behind the bar as it is in front of the bar, then at least your expectation, you go into it with correct expectations. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So something that you had talked about is when you were in China, did you go through these courses of like understanding your culture and like your value and everything? Understanding the company culture or? Yeah. Like, did you do, because the SCI has these coffee management courses. Did you kind of go through a course like that? This was way before that. <laughs> oh, really? No, this is actually before Samuel had any schools open. This was in greenhouse coffee. So he didn't open schools, I think until, no, he had, there was one school in Xi'an that we went to, I think we were only there for like two weeks. So we got to Xi'an, we first got to Xi'an, we were there for two weeks, we were actually in the school upstairs, and we did some like official coffee, like espresso machine courses, like this is how you make an espresso machine, this is how you do the tamping, like set courses, but then we ended up going to Xining, which is in the north, and there wasn't a school there, and so most of our training was just hands-on. It was either at the roastery, like the headquarters that they had, Uh, jumping in on any courses that were like classes that were given or cuppings that they were doing, or we would go to the coffee shop and just get behind the bar and just like pull shots all day. So there was a trainer, Nick, that he was basically sitting with us for a lot of time and doing training with us, but the school wasn't, there wasn't like an official school yet. And so most of our training, Vicky and I, it wasn't, we didn't even do like official courses or anything like that. It was just, getting in there and learning, just doing coffees and jumping in the cuppings and observing the roastings and that kind of stuff. So this was before there was even schools open. So did Samuel ever go through any of that with you, like um, clarifying your culture? What are your values? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's done it with us uh, quite a few times on a personal level. 
the first few years of Torch, we, I think the two or three times, I can't remember, we had yearly meetings. So once a year, we'd all get together and that was what we discussed. Like we're, as a company, what is our culture? What are our values? What is our vision? So we did that all together. It was Samuel. There's a few of us involved in Torch those few years. And then Samuel came to Spain a few years back as well. And we looked over it again. So we've done it quite a, quite a few times already. Did you find that like helpful for you? It, oh, I found that super helpful. Super, super helpful. Okay. Yeah. I think on two different levels, on a level, personal level, in the sense of where are we going as a company and on a local level in Spain. So what is our main motivators? Like what is the core of our company? But also to make sure that we're being in line with Torch in other places. So it's very difficult because like, even though we've known Samuel and Marty for years and years now, we don't have like a constant daily communication. It's, it's, he has tons of stuff going on. I don't know how he does it. And so I think having the set values across the board for Torch, even though we don't have a daily communication or a constant communication between all of us, it kind of ensures that we're all going in the same direction. And so we don't have to, in my sense, I don't feel like I have to discuss everything with Samuel or I don't have to ask his opinion on everything because I feel like we already have those set values across the board. And so even though my decision might be a little different than he would make, at the end, we're all kind of going in the same direction. And same thing, I think for me, at least having that clear vision has helped me feel that there's like a set standard or like there's something that's unifying us across the board. Do you feel like it has given you more mental space or the ability to make decisions more clearly? I think so, yes. I think so. I think one of the ones, for example, making everything repeatable. I think that was the correct word. I'm trying to think of translating it Spanish and English. That helped me a lot with like every clearly everything that we do system wise or in the coffee shop. Is this repeatable? Is this repeatable? Can this be repeated easily? So it's just like having those in your head constantly helps you make little decisions across the board of like, no, I'm not going to do this if it can't be easily, easily repeated. Or you can make decisions easier understanding what the vision is. Okay. Yeah. And like Samuel talked about this idea of um, idea fatigue, where maybe coffee shop owners get in this place where they're just trying to make something work or they're just trying to change things to make themselves like more profitable. Mm-hmm. And they get to a place where, because they're not aligned with like why they're doing it, they're just kind of trying everything. Did you guys ever experience a point like that? Or were you always like, we are only making these kind of decisions in line with who we want to be? I, just, I honestly, I don't feel like I ever did that because I think we were very, we had a very long-term clear vision of what we wanted to be. Our staff would kind of joke around about it too. Like uh, they would say that I'm, I'm terca. I don't know what the word is in English. Shoot. Stubborn, I guess the word would be. Because I had a very clear vision. And so sometimes they would bring ideas to the, like ideas up. Or like, why don't we do this? Or why don't we do this? And I would bring up like, what's our long-term vision? And so there were ideas that they would bring that did fit in and we ended up doing it. But I was very clear on what what we were supposed to be doing. And so I think having that long term helped me like kind of weave out things. I didn't even consider things that weren't part of the long term. So like what was the long term? We knew what type of products we wanted to offer. We knew that the coffee had to be the focal point. So any food items that we did had to be secondary and couldn't clash with the coffee. 
For example, our baker. Our baker's from Sevilla. He's very, very traditional Sevillano. And a lot of the food items here, like they're very set on what type of foods they like. And they don't kind of go outside of that. We're going to introduce some new lunch items. So we had a meeting like to give ideas of what we could put in for for the lunch. And one of the options he brought up was a sandwich with chorizo. And which is everyone loves chorizo here. So it would have sold really well. But we already knew that the flavors of chorizo would clash completely with the coffee. So we discarded that because we knew the coffee has to be the main focal point. Anything that goes around it or is accompanied by it has to complement it. So that's just like a small example, but having that clear vision helped us make decisions easier. What else was part of the vision? The coffee's the priority. What else was in that? I think also keeping everything simple in preparation. So like one of the ideas is like, let's make waffles. I was like, waffles are great, but it's very difficult when you're behind the bar, like in the systems, in the workflow that would have taken up way too much time. And so the product might be great. It might have sold really well, but it would have thrown off our workflow completely. And the time wise, like we, our goal was to have everything on the table for breakfast, 15 minutes. And we would make breakfast in the kitchen, like poached eggs and all that kind of stuff. So our max time was 15 minutes. So we knew if that food item was too complicated or couldn't be done within that time frame, then we wouldn't even consider it. So we just had these kind of guidelines of like service, how long it was going to take, what the workflow would look like. Does that fit into the system easily? The ingredients, how many new ingredients would be added to the ingredient list? Because the less amount of ingredients used, the easier it is to prep stuff in the kitchen. So there's just a bunch of stuff like that, keeping it simple, keeping it fast. That helped us kind of discard things that that didn't fit into that. Okay. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm kind of going backwards because I feel like that's maybe a little bit even like down the line because there's probably a question that you answered before that to where you knew that only 15 minutes mm-hmm. for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And if it couldn't be prepped and served on a table, like on a plate and on a table within that time, then we wouldn't even consider it. Right. So like, why did you make even that decision? That decision, I think it came down to ser- several things. First, we... Because of the high cost of Social Security and everything here, we were always on a very, very limited staff. And so sometimes when I talk to people outside of Spain on, and I would tell them how many tickets we'd see, how many tables we have, how many people came into a coffee shop, how many coffees we would sell per day. And I was like, and there were days of working with three people on a busy, busy, chaotic breakfast rush. There's one person in kitchen, one person on register, one person on machine. And they're like, how did you guys do that? And it was because we had really good systems, but we made sure that everything was super simple to make and that it was super easy to prep, like prep before breakfast, prep during breakfast, and then we'd be able to take it to table really quickly. And so it was a mix of necessity because we couldn't hire any more help. So we needed to make sure that everything that we were doing was simple enough and easy enough for the limited amount of stuff that we could hire. And two, because we were working with a lot of tourism. And so people that are here for tourism don't want to sit down and have breakfast for an hour. They want to have breakfast in half an hour and then get back to their tour, get back to the city. And so we need to make sure that we were serving our customers well in that sense of if they're from tourism, if they're tourists here, they have the option of eating breakfast really quickly and moving out. But we're also serving customers quickly enough that if they want to stay and enjoy, they can. But then we also have the ability of rotating tables pretty quickly, too. 
Okay, that makes sense. And that sounds like something that you probably had to develop more once you got there, once you like understood what you were working with. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that's something Samuel also talks about is that a lot of coffee shop owners are looking for, okay, what works and what doesn't work? Like the very like black and white kind of answers. And he's like, it just really depends on Mm-hmm. your market like mm-hmm. there's so many different answers and there's not really like a this works and this doesn't work kind of thing mm-hmm. and so I want to go back to like the first question that he probably would have asked you is like the why behind your coffee shop like what would you say was like the why behind Torch to be a I think there's there's several I think our core heart or our core reasoning for even doing business or Torch was our heart for the producers, coffee producers back in Guatemala and other countries, because we would see how difficult it was for them. And having the ability to be on the other end of selling specialty coffee and selling it at or purchasing it at a reasonable price to where that producer is actually making money. Yeah. Do you work with the coffee farmers in Guatemala? Not, do you- not directly. That's kind of our that was our long term. Like, that's what we really wanted to do. I think our even coming to Spain, we wanted to start working directly with farmers right away, but it never, we were never able to do it. The same thing, bureaucracy, importing, just, it was just a mess. And it wasn't just, it wasn't something we, we could do, but that was always like our motivation, but we weren't ever able to do it. And I think on a local level, I think for us, it was really big about community, creating a space where, where people could find community, which is, is something that's very difficult here. I think that was our, our motivation for starting the business and then our motivation for specifically doing it in Seville. How did you go about trying to make a place for community in the city? The atmosphere that we tried to create, it was very different from the coffee shops here in Seville. The coffee shops here, they're called barras, they're bar, basically. You come up to a bar, it's like Italy. Stand up at a bar, they give you a coffee, you drink it really fast and you leave. And so I think we were the first like actual sit down, relaxed type coffee shop other than Starbucks. And so I think it was a mix of the location, the actual locale that we found, the furniture and seating that we tried to create, and then the atmosphere. So um, the noise level, the type of music, the stuff we offered, we were very intentional on every aspect just to make sure that it was comfortable and that community would happen naturally. Okay. And so Samuel also talks about like your values, like the, the way that like you as a staff and as a team kind of behave in order to uphold that kind of your why, right? Mm-hmm. So like what, what were kind of like the behaviors or the values that you upheld the most for you and your team? I think one that was very noticeable. And I think even if you would talk to our staff now is one that kind of stuck out a little bit more especially I think when you look at the cultural context, it was something that for me, or when you, when you talk to her, like in America, you're like, Oh, come on. But every company does that. But when you're in a different cultural context and you realize that it's not the norm, then that really sticks out. And I would say respect the hospitality industry in Seville is really known for yelling, cursing, insulting, mistreating, just, it's like, that's just what they're known for. And so I think every person that has worked at Torch has mentioned that at one place or another about how 
they have appreciated the fact that everyone is so respectful to each other and that even within conflict, that there's ways to resolve it, being respectful. And I think even the customers picked up on that because like even one of the articles that came out about us, the title was Un Oasis de Paz, An Oasis of Peace. And so something that for us is just like, that's just how you interact with other human beings because we're all valuable and that kind of stuff. But I think that was something very important to us as well, that we were wanting to be different in that sense, not treat all our employees the same way that all the other, everybody else in hospitality (laughs) treats each other in, in Seville. Wow. What was that like for you when you saw that article? I think that was the article that has... mm, we, we had articles in like European coffee trip. Like we had tons of like on the coffee level that have been great. But this was just like a small local blog type article. But I thought it was super cool. And I think that that hit me more on a personal level because that was it's not just being recognized because like the coffee magazines, you're recognized for your coffee quality or that kind of stuff. But this was like even more. It was beyond that. They recognized our, our core values as a company. That goes beyond just what you're serving. And so for me, that was um, one I think that impacted me a little bit more on a personal level. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. (laughs) Like what a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. And to just kind of see your work come to fruition, Mm -hmm. right? Like that you achieved the goal that you were like setting out for. Mm -hmm. Mm So you talked a little bit about some of the strategies that you had for the customers that you were serving about trying to make food quickly for tourism. And you, yeah, can you talk about maybe maybe a couple more strategies that you used for the people that you were serving and the kind of coffee shop you were trying to be? These strategies, especially behind the bar, were super, super important to us because we're always very short staffed. And so... On a busy, busy, busy Monday, uh, busy Saturday and Sunday morning, we'd have three people working, front of house and one kitchen. But then during the week, we'd have two people front of house and one person in kitchen. That's serving, we could set up to 60 people. And because we're such low staffed all the time, our systems had to be impeccable where communication was clear. Everyone knew what they had to do. We wouldn't waste time having to ask questions about tickets or orders. So everything from just from the register, how the tickets are passed on to the barista, the person plating the desserts, how we would communicate through the tickets. Like, for example, the register was in charge of writing the table number on the on the ticket. And then whenever the person that was at the register is also in charge of plating the desserts. So between customers, they'd be plating desserts. And as soon as they played a dessert, they put a dot next to next to the item on the ticket. That way, the next person in line or the barista already knows that that's being plate that's already plated. It's on the counter, ready to go. And as soon as they saw the dot, then that means I'm that's ready. I can start making the coffees. That way, everything goes out at the same time. And so, if he doesn't see a dot, then he would know that the coffees can't be made yet. The coffees, if they're made too early, they'll get cold. So it's just kind of this workflow of like when the barista knew they have to make coffees and then communicate that that's actually being done to once that ticket, everything in that ticket is prepared, we would move it over to the other side of the counter where everything's plated and set. And then that ticket would be put in a specific spot once they're taken to the table. 
So the ticket would actually move around three places, but every place indicated where there, where that ticket was in process. And then we had a specific place once the full ticket was on the table and another specific place if there was something missing on the table. So just like depending on where the ticket is and what's on the ticket, we would kind of know if something's missing on the table or not, or if that table's completely done, or if there's lacking coffees or... So the communication through the tickets is like we could see a ticket and know exactly what, where we were at or exactly depending on where the ticket is, what's lacking. So I think that took a while to get situated, but then ended up working really, really, really well, really well to the, to the point where other coffee shops here in Seville have asked me kind of to help them out, <laughs> explain the systems. And, and then the kitchen, we had other systems for the tickets in the kitchen. Um, I think we we're very, very careful about it, especially with the tickets. Tickets can be super confusing. And if you don't have a correct system, then it could be a huge waste of time. And customers aren't served correctly because then there's missing items on the table or things come too late and they're cold. Or I think just to give good customer service to it's important to, to have this, all the tickets and stuff and correct systems. How long did that take you to develop that system? I think we were pretty intentional from the very beginning to try to create a system. And so I think for the first year and a half, two years, it was just me and my sister working behind the bar. So I think that was the advantage of we were working the bar. So we kind of knew how things worked. And from the very beginning, we're like, well, does this work better? Does this work better? So even if we didn't at that point, because there wasn't very many customers, we didn't need a system. I think we knew or we were working with the idea that at some point, hopefully we'd have a lot of customers. And that system needed to be in place by then. Mm. And so I think we were pretty intentional right off the bat to at least try to start creating it. But like the actual perfected system, I think it took us maybe two and a half years. That's interesting because that especially, I mean, I think it would be good for any coffee shop, but especially for you guys, it was necessary because you guys had this super high, we were saying like social security, right? For employees. Mm -hmm. And so you had to be short-staffed and that was like a system that you had to have in place in order to work around that right Mm -hmm, exactly it's probably going to change a lot once you get to Guatemala and you kind of like figure out what the situation is but right now like kind of what you and Vicky are talking about is like if you do a roastery are you doing like who do you kind of envision yourself selling coffee to Either like another other specialty coffee shops or coffee shops in general, and then maybe more like the higher end gourmet type grocery stores. There's quite a few of those in Guatemala. Setting up kiosks, that kind of stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. so is specialty coffee a thing in Guatemala right now? It is now. It is now. It started okay. a few years, maybe three years ago or so, three four years ago. And you specifically want to work with the the farmers there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be that would be our our plan is to eventually start buying directly from farmers, be able to roast their coffee, eventually maybe do some exporting. And then you guys want to do try and do some education. And then right now you're thinking, what are what are the coffee shops like in Guatemala? Are they similar to the Spain kind of like bar thing or are they more like sit down? They've, I think they've all been sit down type coffee shops. I think that's just cultural, like they sit down to have coffee. But quality coffee has not really been introduced until the last couple of years. I think people are starting to appreciate it before all the specialty coffee was exported. So it wasn't until Raul Rodas won the World Barista Championship a couple of years ago. I think it was, I don't remember how many years ago. 
He was the one that started kind of introducing specialty coffee to on a local level in Guatemala. And people are starting to really appreciate it now. So just to clarify, the class that you went to in Thailand, why did you decide to go to that class? I think for me, it was a mix of three different things. I think on a personal level, I grew up in ministry with my parents. And so I kind of had this like this internal struggle of understanding that like I guess most missionaries think you know like to serve God you have to be a missionary you have to be a pastor or whatever and so I had this mix of like I wanted to do business I loved business I was obsessed with business but I felt like no but that's not what I'm supposed to be doing because in order to be a good Christian you have to serve God like it was kind of that and then also the mix of like I feel like growing up in Guatemala I saw kind of the negative aspects also or the long-term effects of social work. And so like hand out, like handing people food out or giving them shoes or little things like that. It's great temporary fix, but the long-term effects are actually pretty devastating. And I think um, because of I've seen the long-term effects on some of the social work that's being done in Guatemala and with very good intentions, the very good intentions, but it's created like this kind of, dependency mindset or victim mentality. And I really saw that the only effective way of helping people out of poverty was giving them either jobs, stable jobs, where they're the one that's producing their income. It's kind of like a, a pride thing. Now they're, they're, they have not pride, Orgullo, it's a different word. Like dignity? Dignity, exactly. Dignity in what they do. They've, they've, they've worked for this. Like that's their money and they would be able to now take care of their families and send their kids to school. And right. so I really saw that the only long-term solution for poverty is either job creation or businesses, like giving the people ability to open their own business. So I think it was a mix of those three for me. Like loved business. What's the best way to to do this honoring God. And then the social aspect of like social entrepreneurship, job creation, sustainability, that kind of stuff. So of course in Thailand was kind of a mix of those three things. Okay. And so you heard about it while you were in Guatemala and it was like, it was intriguing enough for you to travel all the way. Well, or were you in Texas at the time when you heard about I, this? I course? was kind of, it was something I was kind of dealing with internally I think during that whole period, because I really like this was for me, it was like, why am I mixing these three things? Or I didn't understand why I was struggling with like the mixing of these three things. Like, how is it that I love business? But how can I join this in with uh, like social entrepreneurship, but at the same time wanting to honor God? So it was like joining three different ideas for me that I didn't fully understand how they all fit in together. I think for maybe more somebody else in the other side of the world or whatever, it was a concept they could fully grasp or understand. But that just in that moment of life for me, it was something that I was trying to understand fully. And I thought I was like, in that moment, I didn't know anybody else who had this idea or this struggle or felt this weight on them for, for not just business, but it's like a, a sustainable business and that kind of stuff. So I didn't know anybody that was kind of having the struggle with these three ideas and how to combine them. I thought I was like the only crazy person out there that <laughs> somehow trying to fit this in my head. So when I saw that course in Thailand, I was like, what? There's This is actually a thing. This is actually a concept of joining social entrepreneurship, honoring God, 
like that kind of stuff. I think just the fact of seeing that there's other people out there with the same concept or trying to understand this concept. It, it was to me, it was like, I have to learn more about it and I have to meet people wow. with the same type of vision. And that's where I met Samuel. So, and so that course did also include faith in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That makes so much mm-hmm. sense. Of course they would invite Samuel to, <laughs> to talk about that. He would be perfect for that. Yeah. It's so cool because I feel like this is such, for me, at least it's like a new conversation that's happened within the last couple of years where it's like, we're getting rid of this um, secular and holy divide. And we're like, how do we just exist in the world and just like love people really well, like where they're at without Mm. having to separate. Yeah. Like one thing with another work. Yeah. But for me, it was like, I just came from such a traditional ministry background that to me it was like a total foreign concept and I had this in my head and it was something that I was trying to work through but I because I had no one in my context or no one in my world that even had this site concept then to me it was completely foreign until I met Samuel I met other people that kind of have that same vision yeah I feel like that's it I just really wanted to have a little bit more like background information and talk a little bit more about the things that me and Samuel have been talking so much about, which is like vision and culture. And you were saying that that really did help you a lot to go back to like your why. And so especially during that time when you and and Vicky were having a really hard time and Samuel was like, don't throw in the towel. Like, let me just come out there. Mm -hmm. What was like so rejuvenating about that time with Samuel? I think just going back to the reason why we're doing this, I think it's so easy to get exhausted, see the daily struggles, the problems or roadblocks. Like you just get so overwhelmed with all these issues, you forget the why. And so I think Samuel really helped us go back to like, well, why are you doing this? And is the why more important than all these troubles and struggles or and that kind of stuff? So it kind of re- helped us refocus on what's important. Okay. And for you guys, that was to create a community space in your city. Well, he helped us kind of rework or re change some of the things up. So we had to re relook at pricing. Like he kind of helped us create a plan for that year and what we needed to do. But I think just having in there is kind of, that's what, what inspired us to remember why we were there. I have a list here. I think I, st- I still have it on my desktop, actually, when Samuel came. Strategic Plan 2018. <laughs> the playbook. We made a whole playbook for the year. Oh, nice. So, yeah, that's when he came. We went through all this. So, like, why we exist? What do we want to accomplish in five years? How do we behave? Who will we serve? So, I think he helped us just go back and, like, refocus all this. And really get a like clearer vision of what it is that we needed to do. And then also we created a kind of looking at what needed to change from where we're at and making an action plan based on that. So like who needs to do what when? Like we needed to raise prices. We needed hire more staff. We needed to increase seating, improve experience. So he kind of like helped us create a list of including that list was like that Vicky and I on a personal level needed to create healthier rhythms on a personal level, like exercise, rest, have a day off, little things like that. So he helped us like break down everything. It was like, you could just get so overwhelmed of like, I'm just exhausted. I'm just exhausted. I haven't had a day off in two years. Like 
when you're that tired, you just, you can't think anymore. So he really helped us to like break everything down to where it made it look very simple to us. Like we just had, okay, well, it's not that much we have to do. We just have to add a couple more seatings and raise the prices. And like, he helped us kind of just like break it down to where it was something that we felt that we could change and that was in our control to change. Can you read like what the, the why and the values that you wrote down on that playbook? Mm, let me go back. Why do we exist? It was to influence farmers to have a better quality of life, co-labor with God in our business, intentionally create an environment for growth. What do we want to accomplish in five years? And at that point, we wanted to be the top brand of specialty coffee in Spain. We wanted to have a 22-kilo pro-bat roaster, which <laughs> didn't happen. And then we have, like, how do we behave, our values. So we champion health- healthiness. We value every person. We develop people. We get it done. We do it with excellence. And we communicate to understand. So kind of like an, a description for every one of those things. Who do we serve, which was our target market, our tourists, expats, and open-minded locals. What do those customers want? The, like tourists, what they want, expats, what they want, open-minded locals, what they want. What do we do for our target customers? Experience a little piece of home, coffee quality, pastries and food service, and a place to meet, which is the creating the community. Then we had strategic anchors, like customer experience, creating a great brand, better photos, coffee info sharing. Then this was the, we only do things that are repeatable. So creating systems, every employee knows responsibilities. Every employee knows their goals. We make written procedures. We follow procedures and update the procedures. Then we create a work environment that encourages employees to thrive. Encourage wholehearted living. We hold each other accountable in effective ways. And then it goes into the list of what what we needed to do to get back on track and stuff. Mm -hmm. When you are so exhausted and you have so many tasks, you're just focused on like the kind of like the most urgent things that need burning, to be taking out fires everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. And exactly. So I'm so glad that he could come out there and just like help you guys look at the big picture. And like, mm. that's so cool. That you said like help you kind of like simplify it. Like mm-hmm. actually we can do this. Like mm-hmm. this is like not as, as difficult as maybe it was appearing like when we were putting out like a ton of fires. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's all the questions I have and I'm going to write a story about you. (laughs) 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 So funny to tell someone that. Um, Okay. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. you